Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. Some of you may remember uh, a few years back, there was this thing in the news about Roundup Weed Killer. Do, you, do any of you use Roundup Weed Killer to kill the weeds in your, in your lawn? How many of you in here use Roundup? Well, apparently, we're all going to get cancer because of that. No, there was this thing in the, in the news that Roundup was causing cancer. At least that was what they were saying was happening. And then, uh, of course, Monsanto, the company that, that owns Roundup, you know, was sending their spokesman out to say, no, 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 it's completely safe, all these things. I don't know anything about it. All I know is that it was this big deal. And one of the spokesmen for Roundup came out, or Monsanto came out and said, hey, uh, this stuff is super safe. No one's ever gotten cancer from it. You could drink a quart of the stuff and nothing would happen to you. He literally said that, um, not making that up at all. And so he's in this interview, this TV interview, and this uh, journalist asks him, so you said that you could drink the stuff. And he goes, yeah, you could drink a quart of the stuff. It wouldn't hurt you one bit. And so the journalist says, well, we happen to have some here. Uh, have any of you seen this video? Oh, my gosh, it's, it's crazy. We happen to have some here. Would you like us to pour you a glass and you could drink it in front of us to prove that what you're saying is true? And the guy said, I'd be happy to. Not really, but I'd be happy to. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> And they said, no, really, do you want to prove that what you're saying is true by drinking a glass of this stuff here? And the guy's response was, I'm not an idiot. <laughs> okay. Totally called his bluff. But this calling of his bluff showed for the whole world to see that there was a large difference between his words and his actual beliefs. He was saying things that he wouldn't actually do and that he didn't actually believe. And here's the big idea. If you want to know what a person truly believes, listen to what they say and then watch what they do. Watch what they do. Today, Jesus' brother, James, we've been in this passage in this, this uh, series uh, in James for the past several weeks, in James 5, 2, if you want to open there right now. In this passage, uh, Jesus' brother James is gently but firmly calling our bluff. So brace yourself because it's a little painful, but it's so good. James is saying, you say you know and follow my brother, King Jesus. Good. You say that you want to have integrity like him, that you want to become like him. Good, good. But don't just tell me, show me. Here in James 5.12, James boils it down to this. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Let the integrity of your life be that simple that when you say yes, you do yes. When you say no, you do no. Unquestionably, James is remembering back to the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 33 through 37. Jesus preached this amazing sermon. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And in this sermon, he talks about this very thing. And who knows, maybe James was there watching his brother preach, or maybe he just read it in Matthew. Maybe he, he heard about it somewhere else. In the traditions of Jesus' sayings, I like to imagine him sitting there listening to his big brother preach. 
That would be awesome. But here's what Jesus says that James is no, no question remembering back to. Matthew 5, through 37. Jesus says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is, God's, is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Believe me, I've tried, I've prayed and made O's and it just keeps turning white. Let, simply, let your yes, start that over. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. There's also this passage later on in the same book, Matthew 23, where Jesus condemns this practice of making oaths on different items. So the religious people of that day would either make an oath by the gold in the temple or by the altar or what was on the altar in the temple and all these different things, all of which had different implicit levels of seriousness and holiness. And so by making oaths on different things in the temple or different things in the world around them, it allowed some oaths to be broken by way of technicality. Well, you swore on something that wasn't super, super holy, so if you break it, eh, you're all right. But if you swore by something that was really holy, like the offering on the altar, ooh, if you break that oath, you're in trouble. And Jesus takes it to these religious people and says, look, that is so wrong. That is all lies. In these passages, Jesus is rebuking religious people for using oaths and guarantees of truth as a means to deceive. Imagine that, that we live in a world that's so broken that we as people will actually make oaths and make promises, cross our fingers behind our back, and we will use guarantees of truth in order to pull the wool over the eyes and deceive someone. It happens all around us, and you probably, and I probably did it this week, somehow, whether knowingly or unknowingly. Using partial truth or using an oath or a promise in order to get what I want, but then be able to lie to you, deceive you, and not actually do what I said. And so James, with the message of King Jesus, reverberating in his head, condenses it to this powerful statement, James 5, 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. The most basic message to citizens of Jesus' kingdom is this from James. My words and my actions were designed to be twins. Not fraternal twins, identical twins. My words and my actions as a member of Jesus' kingdom were designed to be identical. If I say yes, then I do yes. If I say no, then I do no. Now, does it hit any of us? Why would we need to invoke the name of God or make a promise that what I'm saying is true? Why, why do we do that? Why do human beings say something but then say, oh, I promise or I swear? I swear on my mother's grave or I swear on this or I swear on that. Why do, why do human beings do that? It's because we know we're all a bunch of liars. Am, am I wrong? 
because we know that on other times when we didn't say that, man, you know, I said that, but then, oh, do I really need to do that? I'll do something different. So what I said was different than what I did. But this time, this time, I promise you, it'll be different. I'm making a promise. And so that somehow magically makes me do what I'm saying I will do. We make oaths, we make promises in everyday life, typically because we know we're dishonest, because we know our word isn't enough. If my words are sincere, then there's no oath that can make them truer. Now, don't try to get out of jury duty with this, probably because they make you take an oath. Uh, we don't think, most people who study the Bible, we, as if I'm part of like the, the elite you know, scholars, most scholars don't believe this applies to those types of uh, public oaths that are practical for the sake of I'm showing witness before everyone that I will tell the truth. Most scholars don't believe that this applies to that kind of thing. In fact, there's a whole part of scripture in, in the Old Testament that regulates these kinds of oaths. What it really is coming down to is in our day-to-day -day relationships with other people, does my word hold weight? Is it of any value? Do I do what I say I'm going to do? What James is saying is that the kingdom citizens, Jesus' kingdom citizens, should love, live, and speak truth. If anything we do or say has even the intention of deceit, it is sin. Have you ever said something true that was technically true with the intention to deceive? If it's if you have to say technically after it's true, it, you just lied, right? What if my wife came to me and said, Travis, do you love me? And I said, yes, technically. <laughs> There's a whole word that's been coined. I don't know if it's coined or just reused for this now because it happens so much in our culture. It's called paltering. And the idea is that it's using true statements with the intention of deception. So it's like a mom coming to her son and saying, son, did you do your homework? And he said, mom, I, I wrote my essay on Martin Luther King Jr. I did it, it's done. She's pacified, she, oh, good, okay, good, you did your homework. Little does she know that he wrote that three weeks ago, it was due three weeks ago, he did that homework three weeks ago, but hasn't done his current homework, but she's pacified thinking he's done his homework now. Paltering. He made a true statement, but what was the end goal? Deception. We do this all the time and say, well, technically it was true. You just lied. You just intended to deceive. God's heart for his kingdom people is that we would be honest all the way down to the smallest thing. Is that a tall order? Yes, it is but it's not about the size of the deception or the magnitude of the deception. It's about the completeness of my character. Do I wanna have integrity or don't I? Then it doesn't matter how big or small the lie was. The question is, do I have integrity? Is what I said true? When I said it, did I do it? A small lie still proves that your words can't be trusted, that, that you can't be trusted, that I can't be trusted. And church, this is something I've learned over and over again in my life, both in good ways and in hard ways, 
There are some things that money can't buy. Integrity and character is one of them. You could sell all you have. You could spend all your money and you cannot make yourself one stitch more of character than you have by your actions. You cannot buy integrity. You cannot buy character. We earn character, we earn integrity by what we do in God's grace. If my character is one of smokescreens, technicalities, and deceit, James says that I am in danger of falling under condemnation. What does that mean? Am I, am I, if, I, if I live in a way where I say yes, but then do no, or say no, and then do yes, how does that put me under condemnation? Is it condemnation by God? Is it condemnation by man or by both? Here's a third option that he could mean, and I have no way of knowing if this is what he means or not. But perhaps what James means is that if you live deceitfully, when you come under scrutiny, and someone makes accusations, they're condemning you and they're judging you. When those people who would question your character, when they condemn you, you will fall under the weight of it because your lack of character leaves you with no defense. Your record of false words and empty oaths leave you without excuse and you will fall under the weight of scrutiny if you pile lie after lie after lie after lie up. When someone makes an accusation about you, who's gonna believe you? And so you will fall under the weight of their condemnation. Perhaps that's what it means. We don't know exactly what he meant by this. But either way, living a life of deceit, living a life where your words and your actions do not match up is not good for you. It will not end well for you or for me or for anyone. Living this pattern of word behavior misalignment is incredibly destructive to you and to the people around you. So here is the way gospel-believing citizens of Jesus' kingdom respond to this reality, that there's truth, there's what we say, and there's what we do. If you feel shame in your actions, transform your behavior, not the narrative. If you're thinking about doing something, and it's, I want to do this, but I don't want to admit that I did this, so I'm tempted to then say this. Why is it that we always choose, I'm gonna do the thing I wanted to do, and then change the narrative so that they're not twins, but I get to do what I want and then say what I want about it and hopefully people buy it and I can still have character in their eyes, but I still got what I wanted. Why don't we as Christians just stop and say, I could do that, or I could just change the behavior so that what I say about it is both true and I'm proud of it. Why do we change the narrative rather than changing the behavior? It's because we say, I wanna have my cake and eat it too. I want both. Travis, I want both. I wanna be able to do what I want, but also pacify people with what they want to hear. And that way they still respect me, but I still got to do what I wanted to do. In Jesus' kingdom, 
We all know this, and I hate to break it to you, even though you already know it. You can't have both. You can only serve one of two masters. You can only serve truth or deception. You can't have both. That is not the way of Jesus' kingdom. Our culture wants you to think that it's normal and expected to have a public self that you put out there in front of people and a private self that as long as it's hidden and as long as no one else sees it, what you do in private is your business. It doesn't matter because you are entitled to your privacy. This world crams that down our throats every single day. That what you think and say and do in private is your business, just as long as what goes on record publicly is not offensive. But scripture says, there is no private you and public you. There's just you. The God who sees it all, the God who sees everything we say and everything we do, whether we try to hide it or not, he sees it all. He sees he sees. So there is no private you and public you. You're just left you. I'm just left me. In a sense, naked before God. He sees it all. Church, if we all left this room and had the conviction in our hearts that we were gonna live this way, that my yes is yes and my no is no, and I'm gonna live that way. And when I say I'm doing something, that's what I'll do. And when I say I won't, I won't. If we just kept our word and were honest about the things we've done, what a difference, a seismic difference that would make in this world. I told last service that I'm tempted to just end the sermon right here and say, let's go do that. And some of you are really wishing that I would just end the sermon right now because you're hungry and, you know, those guys preach long and stuff, but there's no chance I'm stopping right here. I love you, I'm sorry. There's more to say about this. It's not just about our words and, hey, don't lie. That is not the depth that James is digging to here. Just saying, don't make promises. Just say what you mean and mean what you said. Now, uh, James is definitely intending for us to hear that. Please hear that from what James is saying. It's a very powerful layer of this message, but it goes much deeper than that. This isn't just about our use of words and what we say and what we do. It's about who we are and what we truly, truly believe. Does what we project and say outwardly genuinely match what is true, actually true inwardly? Do our words and claims match our true beliefs and actions? I'm not proud of this story, but I'm gonna tell it. Several years ago, working here at the church, um, there was someone else working here at the church that didn't like how I handled something. I honestly don't remember what it was. If it was you and you're here, I'm sorry. Um, I don't remember who it was, and I, I just remember the situation. They didn't like something I did, and instead of coming to me first, they went and talked to one of my, to, to my boss about me without first coming to me. It hurt me so badly and I was so angry and in my heart I was like, haven't you ever read Matthew 18? I didn't say this to them, but I thought it. Haven't you ever read Matthew 18 where he says like, if you've got a problem with someone, go to them alone first? Why would you do this? Why would you go over my head? I was so upset. And you know what I did? I made a meeting with their boss 
And sitting down in this meeting with their boss, I said, hey, we've got a problem here because so-and-so had a problem with me. They didn't come to me, and they didn't do the biblical thing. You guys all are laughing, hopefully, and inwardly right now. They didn't come to me. They, they went to my boss instead, and they complained about me, and that was wrong. We can't have unity on the staff if people are gonna do stuff like that. And then I, God dropped it on me like a hammer. And the other person was just sitting there looking at me kind of like, and I said, and I guess that's what I'm kind of doing right now. And they said, yeah, you kind of are. I was like, great meeting. Uh, see you later. <laughs> I felt horrible. I felt so cut to the heart because here's the reality. The reality is that I didn't truly believe that going over someone's head without going to them directly first was wrong. I just believed that it was wrong to do it to me. I can quote Matthew 18 all I want, but if I don't do Matthew 18, I'm lying. Or at least deceived. This is how sick we can be. I hope it doesn't bother you too much that one of your pastors is such a hypocrite. But we're all detoxing from this kind of living, aren't we? Here's the inconvenient truth that none of us want to really face. It's that the best indicator of who I am and what I truly believe isn't what I say, it's what I do. We, as citizens of Jesus' kingdom, have got, got to have a more biblical and honestly a more logical and realistic understanding of the relationship between faith and works, between what I believe and what I do. In our tradition, in many ways, it has been so separated that you're saved by grace through faith and works, that's a different thing, that's a different thing. You're not saved by works, which is a true statement. But we've so separated faith and works from each other that we are in times teaching and living a gospel that's different than what the Bible actually says. They are friends. They hold hands, faith and works. At the end of my seminary education, one of my final projects was to write up a personal doctrinal statement. And all that is, is a seminary student or any person who wants to, looking through the Bible at some really important theological issues and saying, here's what I believe on these issues. I believe you're saved by grace through faith. I believe God is, exists, you know, three in one in Trinity. I believe that man can only be saved by Jesus' death on the cross. And so I wrote up this doctrinal, personal doctrinal statement, and I gave it to my seminary professors, and they said, oh, yes, good job. They gave me an A on it. What you've written down here and what you believe is your personal doctrinal statement, we affirm it. And then a few years later, I got to hand that personal doctrinal statement into this church as I was being, uh, what do you call it? Ordained. And uh, I got to hand this into the, the pastors and, and the deacons at this church for them to review it and, and look at my personal doctrinal statement. That was a really good thing for me to do. It's a necessary thing, I think. It's a good experience for me. And then they looked at it and they were able to affirm my doctrinal beliefs as stated on paper. Again, good and necessary experiences. But here's the reality. If you really want to know what I truly believe down to my core, a doctrinal statement on paper just doesn't cut it, does it? If you want to know what I truly believe deep down, the set of beliefs that I actually live my life and make decisions upon, 
Don't look at my doctrinal statement written on paper. Follow me around for a year and watch me live. That's how you know what I truly believe. My personal doctrinal statement is written not merely by what I say, but by how I live. You wanna see what I truly believe? Watch me make decisions. Watch what I do. Here's the deception, though, that seeps into our thinking because of our brokenness and rebellion. This deception is that if I can verbally express good doctrine, if I, as a Christian, can say the right things about what the Bible says and what the Bible teaches, if my stated theological beliefs are biblically correct, and if I mentally understand salvation by grace through faith, and I simply pray a prayer that reflects that my beliefs in my head are accurate, then somehow I believe I'm saved. That I'm a child of God, I'm surrendered to the king. That if I can just express proper doctrine, then somehow that saves me. There's a temptation in our Christian tradition, Protestantism. There's a temptation to look at it that way and say, if he knows his Bible and can express the Bible well, then he knows Jesus. But there's a really big problem with that. And it's this. Mere lip service is not the definition of saving faith. Paul, in Romans 10, 9 through 10, says you must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, but you also must what? Believe in your heart that God rose him from the dead. It isn't just me being able to express good theology. That is important. But what do I truly, truly in my core believe? Francis Chan in one of his books said this. I think this is a good time to remind you that just because you believe a truth doesn't guarantee you possess it. A.W. Tozer describes the textualist as a person who assumes that because he affirms the Bible's veracity, its truth, he automatically possesses the things of which the Bible speaks. Too many people live as though affirming a biblical truth is equivalent to having it in reality. Seminary can teach you how to memorize a menu, but that doesn't ensure you'll ever taste the food. It's terrifying to think that hell may have no shortage of Bible teachers with good theology. I can spout all I want about what the Bible says, but have I truly trusted Jesus? If that doesn't stop you in your soul right now and give you pause, I don't know what will. It does for me. Now, I wanna be very clear. Salvation and life with God is not just about what we say we believe. It's about who we genuinely trust. Do I genuinely, truly trust Jesus as my king? And some may have a pushback and say, well, Travis, isn't that legalism? 
Are you saying that we are saved by earning it with obedience? Are you saying that the way we go to heaven is by doing good things and earning it enough to go to heaven? No. What did I say? No. If I ever preach that, you run me out of this church with pitchforks and you, you warn everyone in a 21,000 mile radius that there's a heretic on the loose. You cannot earn your salvation with God. Jesus did it on the cross. He said, it is finished. He meant that. That is not how we are saved, by our earning, by our doing. I would never say that or teach that. What I am saying is that someone who has truly trusted Jesus as their king, truly been saved, they will obey. Perfectly? Oh, please, Lord, no. Because if perfectly is what you expect, I'm done. I'm out. I can't. And neither can you. Not perfectly. But here's the thing. If you've truly trusted Jesus and he's truly become your king, obedience will be the trajectory of your life. Not perfectly. And there's so much grace and mercy when we fail. There's so much grace and mercy when we fail. But what's the trajectory of my life? Am I my king? Am I growing in authority in my life? Or is Jesus growing in authority in my life? You cannot claim that someone is your king and then live a life in wanton disobedience to that king's commands. Then he's not your king. Failures, yes. Is there great grace for that? Yes. Well, we have times where we backslide and where we do things, where we have a, a season of our life where we are not honoring God. Yes, I think that's possible. But the whole trajectory of my life being that, the world is content with knowing and saying, but the kingdom of Jesus is only content when knowing and saying graduates to doing. Well, Travis, that still sounds a little bit legalistic to me. You're saying that works are important. You're saying that obedience is important. That sounds like legalism. Let me put it this way. I married my wife and we had kids together. Lots of them. That's a fact. That is an objective fact. I am married to Charlotte Edgerton and we have six beautiful daughters together. It is objectively true. And then now, for the rest of my life, I'm working hard to provide for them. When they're hurting, I try to care for them. When they're sick, I do my best to take care of their needs. And when the world throws and offers a priority that would rival them as my priority, I do my best to choose them every single time. I strive, imperfectly as I do, to do everything I can to live in a way that reflects and responds to the fact that I'm a father and a husband. Now, say to that, well, isn't that kind of legalistic, Travis? Isn't that a kind of legalistic way to live with your family? That you think that being a husband and father means you actually have to act like one? No, that's not legalistic. I don't think it's legalistic at all. I think it's real. I think that's relationship. I think that's love. I don't do those things because I want to earn being a, a father and a husband. 
I do them because I love my wife and my kids. Me being a father and a husband produces in me the need, desire, and perseverance that it takes for me to treat them as loved and as my family. Legalism is about earning your salvation. Love is about responding to your salvation. There's a difference. It is not legalistic to say we are saved by Jesus and then we spend the rest of our life doing everything we can to surrender to him. That is not legalistic. That is love. That is trust. That is faith. In the same way, if I claim that I trust Jesus, that I believe him, and he is enough to save me, and his saving me makes him my king, then with Jesus, I will let my yes be yes, and I will let my no be no. I don't get to opt in for Jesus being my savior, but opt out of Jesus being my king. Jesus is an Aflac. We don't get to opt in for parts of what he is in our life. He is savior, yes, but he is king. And kings are to be obeyed. At least this one is. And if I say he's my king, but I don't obey, I'm a liar and the truth is not in me. Perfectly? No. Is this earning his love or salvation? Say it with me. No. Obedience to Jesus is not the way to salvation. It's the aftermath of salvation. The evidence of salvation. There is no such thing as an obedienceless Christian. Christians who fail, yes. Christians who don't obey 100% of the time, oh yes. But what is the trajectory of my life? If I said yes to Jesus being my king, then the rest of my life is a series of blank checks that I write over to him. There's nothing my king can ask of me that is too much. Nothing. Nothing. No sacrifice is too great. No obedience is too much. And I stand here so convicted that I'm saying that, but when I think about my life, how far I have to go. Genuine faith in Jesus produces genuine faithfulness in me. The seed that I was saved with, faith. The seed that I was saved with, faith, will grow into a tree that produces fruit of like kind, faithfulness. I was saved by faith, and that faith, that seed, grows into a tree that makes me faithful, obedient to Christ. Friend, to King Jesus, let your yes be yes. Family, to our King Jesus, let our yes be yes. How do we get there? This might seem overly simplistic and you're going to hear these two things over and over and over, I'm guessing, over the next months because it's what God has been communicating to the leadership of this church. 
There's two things he's put right center screen for us as a body of Christ. And it's this, daily intimacy with Jesus and daily faithfulness to his commands. How can I obey my king if I don't give him time to speak to me? How can I become more like my King Jesus if I don't spend time with him every day? How can the remainder of my day reflect Jesus if it doesn't begin with Jesus? How much time in your day does God have to worship him, to pray, to ask that his will would be done in your life? To ask him, God, what do you have for me today? Who do I need to speak truth to? Who do I need to encourage? Who do I need to give your beautiful gospel to? If we don't start our day giving God that kind of time, how will we ever obey him as our king? Intimacy with Jesus in those early hours of the morning. That's how we begin to know him more, love him more and respond to him in greater obedience. And that's the second thing, daily faithfulness to his commands. Church, we're not helpless. We have a will, and we have the Holy Spirit living in us if we've put our trust in Jesus. The story is not, well, this temptation came along and I just couldn't help it. No, no. Do we fail? Yes. Do we get tempted and do we get suckered into it and fall into it? Yes, but we have a will, and God lives in us. We can say yes to him. We can say no to sin. Let's stop giving ourselves excuses. And when we do sin, there's grace and mercy, but then we own up to it, and we let our words match what happened. We're honest to God and to others about it, and we repent. That is the life of a follower of Jesus. So if you know Jesus and you're sincerely trying to follow him, daily, 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 day after day, don't give up intimacy, worship, prayer with him. And then daily living out that time with him in faithfulness to his commands, obedience. This is what he's calling us to. Some of you in this room may not have surrendered to Jesus at all, and so your next step is realizing that Jesus is the king, Jesus is the savior, and he's the king you want, he's the king you need. You're not a very good king for your life, I'm not a very good king for my life. If I look at my track record, I, I, I should get impeached as king of my life. Jesus is a merciful, gracious king, and he's who you need. And so, if you realize that you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus, then today would be the day to do that. Jesus is the ultimate representative of this kind of character. Most poignantly, like we shared earlier in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was sorrowful unto death about the suffering he was about to endure on the cross, he said, not my will, Father, but yours be done. And then he did it. And because he did it, because Jesus is a man of his word, 
He suffered a merciless death until the last drop of our sin was paid for. That's the kind of king you want. That's the kind of king you need. And so if you need to give your life to Jesus, when I pray here in a moment, I'm gonna ask a prayer team to come forward. If you wanna give your life to Jesus, surrender to him, ask him to save you and make him your king today. That is one blank check you're gonna draw right to Jesus that he will cash and, he, and, he, and then it's gonna be a, the rest of your life giving more blank checks to Jesus in obedience to him. So if that's you and you wanna give your life to Jesus, I'm gonna ask when I pray for the, the, the prayer team to come forward and then you can pray with them. And if you're online, you can text CP prayer to 209-521-0181. Church, would you stand with me and let's pray. Jesus, we stand before you and knowing that we are loved, deeply loved by you. You're so merciful and so gracious and your heart is so tender towards us and we are so grateful that you did everything that it takes, every single thing that it takes for us to be saved. Father, let us never let that truth grow old in our hearts. And Father, we pray that as we walk through this life, our heart, the trajectory of our life and our will would be to live a life of deep intimacy with you and faithfulness to your commands every day. That we would love you, respond in love to you by obeying your commands. We are grateful for you. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. Point.